0: Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care Podcast. Why does this matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We, as healthcare providers, must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello, everyone. Dr. Casey Grover here to welcome you back to another episode of the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Now I have been on a string of interview episodes recently and we are going to do another interview for this episode. I am especially excited for this episode as it's going to be on a great topic and I will be interviewing the expert in my community on this topic. We're going to be covering how to talk to kids who are using substances in a clinical setting, how to counsel parents of kids who are using substances on how to talk to their kids, and how to counsel parents on how to talk to their kids about substance use in general. And with that, let's dig into this episode. All right, well, I am so glad that you are here with me today. Uh, Could you start by just telling me who you are and what you do? Uh,
1: I'm Susan Swick. I'm a child psychiatrist, a general psychiatrist, and a forensic psychiatrist, Um, and I'm the executive director of OHANA, which is a relatively new center for uh, child, adolescent, and family mental health that we're building here at Montage Health on the Monterey Peninsula, and I'm also the chief mental health officer for Montage Health.
0: And a hospital vice president, no less.
1: So many things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's, uh, let, let's start off with just kind of a basic question. So tell me, how do you talk to kids who are using substances when they are your patient, when you're clinically taking care of them? What sort of language do you try to use, try to not use? Tell me how you approach mm. that.
1: That's such a great question. You know, so I, I guess I would start by saying that my main frame with kids that are my patients um, is to keep them talking. And to make sure they understand that while I'm asking a lot of questions, um, I, I'm not I'm not judging. I'm their ally in um, in helping them uh, sort of build their healthiest lives. Um, and so I really try to set a frame that's one of genuine curiosity and being a detective, trying to have them teach me about sort of. What they're doing, where it comes from, and hopefully, um, if they're keeping a lot of stuff a secret, in a way that makes it feel like a relief to be sharing it with somebody. Um, so I really will try to set the stage uh, to to say um, to ask questions that are as factual as possible. Um, and you know, the training uh, in medical school is to not say, "Do you." do you drink alcohol, but to say how many drinks do you have a week Um, to give people permission uh, or you start with the assumption that they're drinking or using. And it's, it's not a bad approach um, uh, even with teenagers, but I would say uh, being ready to, to be a little self-effacing to be authentic uh, and to poke at something. If If a kid that you're confident is using says, nope, I'm not using it all, um, I would stick with it and say, well, have you ever used, what about your friends? If it feels really resistant, I would start with their friends and their friend group and what happens on weekends. And um, I, I, I would say also the other key is to be as uh, detailed as possible and to talk about drinking alcohol, uh, drinking beer talk about don't don't use clinical terminology like alcohol like say beer shots like get get into the detail um, and kids are much more likely to tell you like you know what they have done um, the other thing the frame for kids is maybe not just to say how many drinks a week but to say when is the first time uh, you drank alcohol and then to be specific to say that could be beer it could be shots it could be green alcohol it could be wine could be whiskey and let, and then try to let them unfold it and, and teach you about it. Um, Certainly if you have a kid that's willing to really teach you, be a good student, like ask a lot of questions, find out where they get it, find out, um, uh, you know, what their friends are using, uh, find out how it has changed. If it's, you know, if it's um, cannabis, find out uh, what, uh, what form they're taking it in, what, um, what they're paying for it. Where do they get the money? Um, cause it's not just which drugs, how often, and by what mode of, uh, by what mode of entry. Um, it's also, uh, how, how big a role is this playing in their lives? Um, how, how, uh, entrenched is this behavior already? Um, how much risk are they at for, um, legal trouble, which um, is, is a really good marker of how entrenched the behavior is and uh, how much need you're going to have of a real substance use disorder team to help them versus um, being able to, to address a behavior with the support of a family. And sometimes family and your, your small clinical team is going to be enough. Um, but if you have a child that actually is dealing, um, is uh, stealing to pay for uh, drugs or alcohol, then you're gonna you're gonna need to cast sort of a wider wider net around this child to help um, address the range of behaviors.
0: So, do you do any kind of level setting at the beginning of the visit, or, or how do you kind of bring that up, or or kind of set the stage for an open and honest conversation?
1: Um, You know, I think one of the nice things about being in psychiatry is that most of our conversations feel pretty open and honest. Um, And, but you do try to start with wherever a kid is at, you know, you start with like, how's your week been? What's going on this week? So you let them open the door and then you say what you're concerned about, what you're noticing, what you've heard about. Um, And uh, I, I would say that to the degree that you have a concern, if the child hasn't shared any Um, detail about drugs or alcohol with you Um, and you have a high index of suspicion um, because they're deteriorating at school or because you got a call from a parent. Um, This often happens. You'll get a call from a parent that they found something on their child, but they don't want you to tell the child that they found the drugs in their backpack because they were searching their child's backpack. that's, that's another opportunity to do some level setting, but that's with parents where you say, I'm always, I'm always open to hearing from you, but you have to um, think about uh, the fact that um, anything you tell me, I need to be able to discuss with your child. So let's think about how I can tell them that in a way that's gonna feel manageable or reparable um, at home. So it's often thorny and sticky and I think that it, it can be helpful to acknowledge that. So if a parent has found uh, 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 cannabis in a child's bag um, and you're the one <laughs> that gets to bring it up, um, I think that you eventually, you ask open-ended questions and then you start talking about how concerned other people seem. And have, has this child, have they noticed that? Why do they think that is? What have they noticed about schoolwork, about friends, about their extracurriculars or their hobbies? Um, and then being able to talk honestly about what you see. It feels, at that point, it's a little more like a standard intervention um, than just detective work because you kind of know what's going on. Whereas when it's detective work, I always, if at all possible, I actually will try to sit next to a child and not face to face where it feels more like an interrogation. Um, And, but if you can't sit next to them, you at least want it to feel sort of um, feel as if you are sitting next to them. And the two of you together are kind of taking track of uh, what's going on in their lives and what might be working well for them and what might be um, something that they could use some help with. You you wanna make them curious um, and complicate their thinking. Uh, Otherwise they're gonna be really aligned with their drug or alcohol use and not wanna give it up for you. So you don't wanna be in a tug of war with that child. So if they feel like you're next to them, I mean, it's sort of the core of motivational interviewing too, right? If um, where you wanna help them imagine what's gonna be a life worth living And find some intrinsic motivation uh, for living that life sober rather than it being to get you off their back, because that's rarely a lasting, a lasting motivation.
0: You've already touched on on this a a little bit, but let's dig into that a little bit more. So how do you engage with kids that are not open with you and then? Additionally, how do you engage with kids that are very defensive? I mean, you go into mm. the visit, they've got defensive body posture. They're very much mm. in denial. How do you kind of open them up or, or even just engage them at all?
1: Well, if, if a kid's really defensive, I think you have to remember, one, um, make sure you have your frame of what do you need to accomplish that day? If you have a safety concern, um, then you try to engage with them. But you may end up having to bring their parents in and have a broader conversation about what people are worried about. So if you have reason to think that they're not safe, you might have to um, kind of threaten the alliance you're trying to build with that child in the interest of keeping them safe. Um, If you don't have a pressing safety concern, um, I would say uh, it's a little bit of a long game. So I tend to start with poking around the edges and trying to find something that feels cooler um, to talk about with them. So literally it can be as cool, depending on how much time you have. Um, what are they watching on TV? What did they do for the weekend? What is fun? What's What are they, wa- I mean, you know, I'm terrible at sports, but I'll be like, are you watching any sports? And they'll be like, they'll give me that look of like, we don't even refer to it as sports. And then I'll be like, come on, what are you watching? Um, so I try to find something that is engaging to them and let them teach me about it. Um, and there's always a hook. There's always a story about, you know, an individual athlete or a team that's triumphing over adversity. Um, if it's if it's sports, um, if it's a TV show, same story. If it's uh, it, it nice for it, even if it's music, their favorite band, um, maybe the story of the artist that they love so much. Um, getting them talking and teaching you about something, something authentic, something they really get to teach you about um, is usually a good opener um, to then feel like you're a little more um, on a level playing field. They've taught you something. um, And then you can be a little curious about what else, how are they sleeping? And then you start maybe with them, but with again, slightly more neutral territory, sleep, a physical activity level, nutrition, how's their energy? You know, you sort of start with how's the machine operating? Um, and then you get to find out what kind of gas are they putting in the tank um, and be curious with them, but they've already taught you something. So it helps, it helps to, it's, it's genuinely humbling. Um, when my patients teach me anything about music, about tech, about uh, uh sports, obviously about, um, um, entertainment, pop culture. Um, so it's, uh, and then, and then it's possible that I get to teach them something.
0: Do you ever find that you actually have to use an entire session of just kind of easy topics Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. even more than one session on easy topics just to get a kid to trust you?
1: Well, I think that trust, trust, absolutely. But you want, you want to, if If I have something that I think we need to address, I will get there during that one session. I will introduce it Um, because part of the trust is that they know that I am authentically concerned for them and that I care about them enough that I'm willing to bring up things that are a little uncomfortable. Um, But it's a lot easier if I don't dive right into that. Right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I will I'll try not to um, uh, to have it feel like we're using distraction and denial and we're only talking about sports and music. Um, so I will I will wind my way back to finding out about, you know, how are they feeling? How is their sleep and activity level? How's school going? how friendships going? And then to talk about what I'm what I'm hearing or seeing or curious about or concerned about. Um, and I think it's a good rule of thumb for clinicians, but for um, you know those of us that are parents uh, to hold on to, that we often feel afraid that when our, our children are potentially um, uh, doing things that may not be good for them to manage difficulty, adversity, or distress, um, that we often feel like we don't wanna make them feel more distressed. The one thing we wanna do is lighten their load. But in truth, um, their central task is um, getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's actually the work of growing up. It's the work of adulthood too. Um, But when kids are using drugs and alcohol, it's often becomes a problem because they're struggling with how to manage Challenge or discomfort, and they start to use substances to either numb themselves um, or to avoid. Uh, so, to the degree that we we do conceptualize our job as helping them get better, get more comfortable at being uncomfortable, I used to say it was the work of growing up was about getting good at feeling bad, but. Not too many kids or parents sound ex- feel excited about that job, <laughs> so so now I say getting comfortable at being uncomfortable, um, and I'm like it's just a part of life. It's a part of every day, um, and you have to find ways to withstand it and to manage it so that you know you're you get stronger and better at it, so it gets easier to handle, um, and so the things you do don't derail you um, and start to mess up the good stuff um, because. While there's discomfort in every day and sometimes more than other days, um, there's always also the potential for delight, for novelty, for joy, for love, for all kinds of extraordinary things. And how we handle discomfort actually plays a big part in setting us up for the good stuff.
0: It's you know, so funny. You mentioned getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That was like a core skill in emergency medicine residency. Yeah, uh, totally.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a core skill in medical school. Right. Too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Like, If you, if you avoid, if you avoid studying for the anatomy exam, it's only going to make the next stuff harder.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned this as well, just briefly, and I want to come back to this. Talk to me about how much you use motivational interviewing in kids and how is motivational interviewing in kids different than in adults?
1: Well, that's a great question. This is where I wish I had actually done a substance abuse fellowship. um, uh, Because, um, I would actually say that motivational interviewing is the central work of working with teenagers um, and whether or not they are dealing with uh, a substance use disorder. Um, Because it's very tempting uh, in working with young people um, to talk and tell, um, to tell them, Uh, what they should be doing with their sleep and activity level with this friend or with that test. Um, And in fact, uh, the work of um, assessment, the work of therapy um, with kids facing all kinds of challenges, whether it's major depression or an anxiety disorder, or if they just are are sort of struggling with the the challenges of growing and they have some adjustment uh, difficulties and you're trying to help them, mature more successfully, Um, the the most effective posture is uh, to be sort of open and agnostic, not overly allied with them against their parents, not overly allied with their parents against them, um, but genuinely um, curious about who they are, engaged by them, and trying to help them pay close attention to their thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and the facts on the ground, trying to help them get better at describing what they're managing, what they're doing, how they're doing it, um, and then letting that sink in a bit um, so that it can't just be, teenagers sometimes are um, uh, managing tough choices um, by letting their um, frustrated and frightened parents kind of own the responsible approach and be like yeah but my parents don't understand me they just want me to um go to college and become a lawyer like dad is and they don't understand that i'm an artist i'm a music maker and um and so they've they've taken this posture where they don't have to make um maybe tough choices by saying my parents are the ones that hold all the worries about paying bills, and I get to hold all the ideals of being a creative artist. This is just a a uh, rhetorical situation. Um, and in truth, what what they're really dealing with is their own internalized worry of, I think I'm a, I think I mostly love making music, and I'm not sure how I'm going to also be able to have a house or pay bills or or eat. Um, And that's a, that's a tough one to figure out. And do I want to, what am I going to choose to do? Um, It's easier sometimes to sort of say that's a, that's a struggle between me and my parents than it is to internalize that struggle and say, oh, I have some, I have some tough choices to make, and I'm going to have to hold some uncertainty. Um, And what we want to do with teenagers is actually help them uh, start internalizing those choices, internalizing um, uh, both. Um, uh, all those dimensions of um, thinking about the present trying to think a little farther afield, a little more about, you know, one year from now, five years from now, maybe even 10 years from now. Um, And being able to make choices even when you don't have total certainty. Um, And motivational interviewing is really essentially about that. It's about being agnostic, not pretending that you know, um, shooting heroin is a good idea. You you know, you have to be allied with what you think are the facts, right, of course. But, <laughs> and at the same time, you're genuinely committed to sitting beside your patient, whether it's an adult or or a teenager, um, and helping them to start detailing, what are the what are the feelings or thoughts or uncertainties that may have brought them to this point? What are the things that bring them real joy or engagement, real interest? Um, can they imagine a future that's rich and satisfying? Um, uh, and and how could they get there? And becoming a part of thinking about um, you know helping them get to a point where they may start saying, well maybe maybe drugs really aren't. The, the solution. Um, one of the things I think it helps to remember is for, um, and you know, I did my adult training first, but working with adults with um, substance use disorders is very much like working with adolescents. Most of them began their, uh, their substance use in their adolescent years. And while we, we don't have X-rays to be able uh, to um, somehow date our our patients' um, uh, uh, development or developmental stage. Um, we generally could say with some confidence that their sort of psychosocial development kind of got stunted. It stops when they start using drugs and alcohol because you stop actually having to basically get comfortable being uncomfortable, manage difficulties, come to solutions, find compromises, manage conflict, and um, find forgiveness for things. Um, once you start man- managing those things with the escapism of drugs, or drugs just mean that you're not present for uh, for those lessons, for those challenges, um, that their development uh, stops a little bit. So even working with 30 year olds that had a longstanding substance use disorder is very much like working with adolescents. So I would say motivational interviewing is, um, is uh, very much the, the posture that it helps to have with teenagers of all varieties and with um, adults that are managing uh, uh, a substance use disorder.
0: Yeah, that that has definitely been my experience as well with addiction is the emotional development stops when the substance use starts.
1: Right, Um, right.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned quite a bit about family dynamics. And I, I often say that, you know, treating addiction is a team sport, meaning that we must engage the family when treating mm-hmm. addiction. Um, mm-hmm. And that's obviously an oversimplification, but um, l- let's unpack fam- family dynamics a little bit. So when you first are meeting with a family that has a child with a substance use disorder, kind of what general counsel do you give to parents as they're starting to come to terms with the fact that their child is using substances? Well,
1: it, it depends on where they're at with that, but I would say um, if, if I'm confident that the child has a substance use disorder and 90 plus percent of children with a substance use disorder also have another comorbid psychiatric illness, whether it's a mood disorder, an anxiety disorder, an emerging thought disorder, um, uh, untreated ADHD, um, a variety of conditions. Um, we're usually talking about sort of a host of challenges, so it depends on what parents um, imagine they are here to treat. Um, But I would say first and foremost, my goal is to help parents um, maybe get their balance back um, in terms of feeling like they have valuable expertise on their children. Often parents whose kids are using drugs and alcohol. Will feel um, uh, deeply discouraged about their ability to raise their child, to set effective limits. Um, And they may sort of swing between sort of passivity and surrender, um, maybe over accommodation, um, and then uh, sort of deeply sort of authoritarian impulses of, you know, wanting their child to get arrested or wanting their child um, uh, to calling the cops uh, whenever things get uh, really tough at home. Um, So my first goal is to actually find out a little bit about um, their child's strengths from them, what they think their child is um, or has been in the past really good at. Um, And then also, think about how have they uh, sort of set limits, um, created routines, um, set expectations. Um, And it doesn't have to be in the present. I try to go back to the last time it felt more successful. And it can be as simple as like, what was the bedtime routine like when your kids were younger? Um, But helping parents realize there's already some ballast in their ship for withstanding um, choppy waters. Um, reminding them that um, what their child is going to need is going to be a tougher balancing act than it was when they were just helping their child finish brushing their teeth and go to bed, even though their child wanted to stay up later and read or play video games. So um, helping them recognize that they're going to have to set some routines and in some ways The routines become the easiest part, but they become really organizing. Um, So whether it is about making sure the other routines, so that not every conversation is about drugs and alcohol, um, but routines around sleep, around screen time, around family activity levels, um, trying to get back in sync and having sort of simple uh, uh, physical expectations um, and routines that they can maintain. And then also having rules and really clarifying um, what are are the consequences that are available for parents um, to use when rules are violated. And again, to focus more on the rules that may not be about drugs and alcohol, but may be about curfew, um, that may be about um, um, communicating with parents if they're out with friends. Parents often feel like they have no leverage left and yet their kids still have cell phones their kids still have uh, computers in their bedroom. And so we get to actually get down into the nitty gritty and think you actually have quite a bit of leverage left. So let's let's think about all the things um, that you have available to you uh, to use as consequences that can get removed for a short period of time um, so that parents can get back a little bit into the driver's seat. Um, Then the key is to also leaven that uh, with um, enhancing their ability to be attuned um, so enhancing creating space where they know it's okay they don't have to react to everything they get to they get to do a little more of what i was talking about having the chance to do with my patients which is to show up and be curious about what their child is experiencing if drugs and alcohol feel too charged in that moment. They should be curious about school. They should be curious about music. Um, Making sure that they're having curious, thoughtful listening time with their child. That's about anything else. Um, And then also making sure that if at all possible, they're having a little bit of joy with that child. So finding the thing that the parent loves doing, that that child loves doing with them or did in the past, whether it's Sometimes it's gotta be something passive with families that are really strained and a child that's really struggling. It's rare that they're gonna go out and um, start throwing a Frisbee together, but maybe they love watching tennis. Maybe they um, enjoy watching um, you know, a bad sitcom from the 90s. Um, but even if it's passive, if, if it's a shared experience where they might be synced up in laughter or in suspense, that's really valuable. So I say, make sure you protect time for some shared experience that feels at least neutral and maybe even fun. Um, But the goal is to help parents realize they still have some leverage. They still have an ability to set expectations, to create routines. They'll have to live by them too. It's gonna be really important. Um, And for there to be rules and consequences. The other thing that's different about parenting, maybe teenagers than little kids, is that parents have to expect to talk a little more about why they have the expectations they do, why they have the routines that they do. They don't have, it's not democracy exactly. They're not negotiating the rules or the routines or the expectations, but they're talking about them Um, Because again, the goal is to help their child begin to internalize um, that there's a reason for these routines and rules and expectations. It's not just to punish them. It's not because their parents are the man. It's because um, we all need a good night's sleep because some days are great and some days are difficult. You never know what day it's going to be when you wake up. And so sleeping is one of the simplest and most critical things you can do to protect that. Sounds boring, but actually it's really important for parents to be prepared and actually to get into the habit of talking through the why. Um, And it's more like it's just a ticker tape running uh, at the bottom of the screen so that their child is taking in. It's not to punish you. It's because this is how we take care of our machines. And it's um, my job as your parent uh, to be helping you learn to take care of your machine. And maybe right now, uh, you need a little more help. Um, and I'm I'm here for it. And I care about you enough that I'm ready to say and do some things that might be a little uncomfortable. Um, but it's also not personal. And it's not meant to be punishing.
0: Yeah, l- let's follow on that a little bit. So, you know, imagine a parent has just found out that their child has tried cannabis for the first time or is drinking alcohol regularly on- regularly on the weekends. How -hmm. do you talk to parents about kind of the initial confrontation or a confrontation about a return to substance use after a period of abstinence? Mm.
1: So I would, I would, um, I would say, first of all, when parents find out about a child, let's take the first situation where it's just, they discover a first use of cannabis or alcohol. Um, either they discover it because they pick up their child at a party and they're clearly intoxicated um, or their child tells them. Um, in either case, that is a beautiful opportunity. Beautiful, that is exquisite. It may feel terrible to parents, but to be able to say this is this is gold um, from a parenting perspective because what they wanna do is respond, take it seriously, but do not panic um, and do not resort to draconian measures um, because when you do that, it's gonna make your child much less likely to talk to you um, if it is one, a serious problem, two, um, if in the future something else comes up that is uncomfortable or embarrassing or a rule violation, but we want, we want our kids to come to us whenever they're facing something difficult. So you want the experience of it to be that once again, you are taking it seriously. You are sitting down next to them and you acknowledge the facts on the ground and then be so curious. Tell me, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened at the party. Find out maybe it was a situation where they were with, um, their best friend who now has a new group of friends and they're trying to be cool and not look like a dork in front of their, their, you know, in this awkward social situation where they're feeling insecure because their best friend isn't so much their best friend anymore. Um, and then really being compassionate about what that must feel like um, being curious about what the experience was like. How did it feel to, to use cannabis? How did it feel to drink? Like really let them tell you, like physically, what did they feel? Did they like it? Was it scary? Did they feel panicked or anxious or disturbed or nauseous? Or did they love it? Did it feel um, delightful? Did it feel, you know, it's actually really helpful to help your child put words to the experience and to be curious, because I, as a parent, if my child loved it, I'm about to have a different conversation than if they're like, I'm never doing it again. I threw up. Um, I also felt out of control and dizzy, and I couldn't make my words make sense. Um, And I hated it. But in both cases, you don't want to just be like, phew, I'm so glad they hated it. They'll never do it again. You want to actually talk with them um, about um, one, the idea that, well, you know, some people find that they do not like that feeling of being, uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit less in control of every muscle, every word, um, everything. And other people do like that feeling. Um, and that's good to know about yourself that you don't like that feeling. Likewise, to be able to say, that's really good to know about yourself, that that feels really good. Um, which means there's a little bit of risk. First of all, it's great to be able to enjoy a lot. Like the, you know, the history of the world is, is full of stories of uh, people who maybe made great art uh, uh, in, um, in a state of slight inebriation. So there's not. It's not nothing to be able to enjoy uh, uh, a, uh, an experience of. Um, a glass of wine. Um, but being able to say, if you really, really liked that, it's good to know that about yourself because it might mean that there are times when life is really difficult and that begins to feel like a substitute for dealing with the difficult thing that you're facing. Um, so you want to just, you know, put a pin in that and be aware that you might be a little prone to maybe overeating when you're stressed or to drinking when you're stressed, trying to escape stress for a feeling of lightness um, and avoidance uh, because it can get you in trouble uh, that that, uh, that that very human uh, instinct. Um, and then parents have this wonderful chance to also think about um, if their child is able to tell them a story about what happened that includes, the social circumstances, which in childhood and adolescence, it usually does. This is why, uh, you know, kids are the ones exploring drugs and alcohol um, because that's their job to explore the world. um, And uh, because they are keenly responsive uh, to social rewards, much more so than we as adults are. Um, So thinking with them, Let's imagine, think with your child, let's imagine that this happens again. and Or you're at a party and a boy you really like um, offers you a pill. Um, what could you say uh, that would, um, how could you say no in a way that wouldn't make you feel embarrassed um, or wouldn't make you feel ashamed or wouldn't make you feel like you're making him embarrassed? Let's imagine it and to actually I mean, it sounds dorky, but to actually role play a little bit, to like come up with language that feels like that child's real language that they could use. Because the truth is having a script at the ready is the way kids avoid bad situations. Um, It's when kids are not prepared uh, for a situation that has some social pressure in it um, that they often will give in to the pressure. Um, And likewise, complicating a kid's thinking about how dangerous is this. And then finally, the last thing I'll say is you want parents should always, no matter where they land in these conversations, they want to be so appreciative and so um, affirming of their child talking with them about it. Be like, I'm so glad that you you've been able to tell me this stuff. It's so important. Um, life brings all sorts of difficult situations, awkward choices, um, and maybe even like sometimes some lessons we learn an easy way and some lessons we learn a hard way. And I really want you to know that you never have to do that alone. I always, I always am here for you. And if you tell me the truth, you're not going to get in trouble for it. So when, when a household has rules, like we don't, we don't drink, we don't do drugs, and if you do, here are the consequences. There needs to be um, a, a special circumstance when you so that your child knows they can always call you from a party um, or and say, I need a ride home, regardless of what they've been doing, or call you and say, I need you to come get me and my friend, because I don't, I don't feel safe with them driving. Um, or me driving, like you want your child to turn to you. So you need to have a special kind of get out of jail free card um, that your kids know about um, to be, and it, it often can be enough to say, okay, well, you're gonna lose your phone for the rest of the day, but let's, let's go watch a basketball game, you know, where it feels like implicitly there's still some uh, reward for them um, and that it's not just punishing. Uh, because you really want them to know, to meaningfully know, that when difficult things happen, um, they should come to you with the truth, um, and you'll be there for them. That's that's the whole ball game. The whole yeah. ball game.
0: And I apologize for any background meowing. My cat decided she was lonely and wanted to join <laughs> us, so I apologize. Um, so no, I uh, let's follow along on that and and kind of unpack you know, kind of the the parent child interactions around substance use, how do you, how do you counsel parents on dealing with lying about substance Mm -hmm. use? So I think Mm -hmm. this is something that parents really struggle with is, is trust. You know, my child has lied to me. When can I trust them again? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I have so many of my patients tell me, you know, doc, I'm really telling the truth this time. And, you know, I personally Mm -hmm. struggle with that professionally, but how do you talk to parents about lying around substance use?
1: Well, that's such a great question. It's really a tough one, and parents often do feel um, betrayed and um, and foolish. And uh, when you think, when you step back and think about it, the nature of substance use disorders um, are that it, I mean, it's it's literally in, almost impossible for people with true addiction to be able to be um, totally honest about it because it's sort of the addiction talking. Um, that said, I will suggest to parents that they're going to have to start with trust, but they need to also um, extend trust in other areas. So we should assume that, you know, relapse is the rule. And if they think their child is using, they're probably using. That's what the addiction is going to want to do. It's the nature of treatment. It takes, it's a long road. You also, though, want You rebuild trust by extending trust, Um, but I would do it in other areas. So give the child a chance um, to talk honestly about other stuff, like like how they're doing at school or um, whether they went to school um, or who, who, uh, who they like in their friend group to try to bring, expand the sphere of things you are talking about to give your child more and more opportunities to be genuine with you. Remember also that the nature of adolescent development when uncorrupted by drugs and alcohol is change. Um, So when uh, that kids are um, at their very core doing intense work, adolescence is very, very turbulent, Remodeling, um, and kids figure out their identity. They figure out how to create and manage deeper relationships, how to establish independence, and how to manage their own impulses. These are this is a big it's a big task, and they do it by um, trying on uh, new interests, new values. Um, new hobbies, new undertakings, and they fully embrace them when they're in them, and then they move on. So um, parents can also uh, feel potentially, maybe not betrayed, but surprised that their child who's always been a ballet dancer has now decided to stop dancing um, and do stage crew. Um, Now this doesn't it doesn't really feel like a betrayal, but for a parent that invested nine years of driving, you know, five times a week to ballet class and going to recitals and not even to mention the money for the shoes and the costumes and all that stuff, um, it, it they can have some investment in that pursuit. Um, and normalizing the idea that adolescence is actually a time where there's a lot of trying on and then discarding of Um, identities. Um, And this includes hobbies, it includes friends, it includes interests and activities. Um, And parents have to embrace the present uh, and um, uh, be curious about what their child's thinking and doing and feeling um, and give them lots of opportunities to be trustworthy And to be really clear, that being honest and genuine about what they're thinking and feeling is the most important thing. And then to really rebuild trust, to for the parents to set certain expectations that they think are possible for this child to live up to. So it may be about having a regular bedtime. It may be about um, making sure their phone sleeps in the kitchen and not in their bedroom. To separate it from the sort of the really charged center um, of uh, using, which we may even all agree, including the child, they want to stop, but that's going to be the the hardest work. So you want them to start shoring up their sense that they are capable of uh, discipline, of uh, building a life that's worth living by letting them succeed at being trustworthy, but in territory that's a little bit easier, a little bit easier for them to manage. So that's what I would prioritize. And the other thing, this sounds really obvious, but it sometimes it suffers when loving parents are really scared and worried about their their child and frustrated. Um, is that the the their child has to always feel unequivocally that they are loved um, and that uh, together we're going to manage this disorder, right? And that um, uh, alcohol dependency, drug dependency, these are disorders um, and they are illnesses. We understand them somewhat well, not as well as I would like. Um, and there's lots that we can do um, to treat them and that their parents are, are going to be there beside them. Again, this doesn't mean that we accommodate all bad behavior, that they can steal money from mom's purse and we'll be like, okay, honey, that's all right. There are consequences for behaviors, but for parents to, to repeat, I don't love what you did, but I love you. And to really have that feel separated. So the child always is internalizing this idea that they are worthy of love, that, they're, that they're, the love from their parents is not threatened by this illness. Um, even though at the sort of toughest moments, parents may have to do some tough things, um, that their words um, are continuously reinforcing this, the, the fact that their actions show how much they love their child. This sounds sort of obvious, but I think it's a really, it's, it's an important mantra for parents, for them to remind themselves that these are acts of love, because they will often feel frustrated and even pissed. And and feel like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing in this consequence because I'm so pissed at my child for lying to me again. Um, honoring the fact that they feel frustrated and pissed because they're human. And then also really leavening that with the idea that they love their child, remembering the child they love and that the behavior, they're working really hard, hopefully with a good team, um, to help the child sort of move out of this behavior. Um, to help them recover, um, and uh, but the love has to be protected and talked about also.
0: Absolutely. Well, I know you and I both have quite a few meetings today, so I'm going to give you one last question. Okay. So for parents of young children, and I'll let you define mm-hmm. the age, when is yeah. the best age to start talking about substance use, and what's the best way to bring it up?
1: Um, I love that question. I don't think there's any age that is too young, actually. Um, so anytime a child brings it up, be open the door, be like, tell me more. If a child brings up someone was vaping in the bathroom at school today, you know, if a second grader in the elementary school um, found out that a fifth grader was vaping in the bathroom, which I've heard about, um, me too. <laughs> yeah, then parents should be like, tell me more. What did you hear? What's vaping? What did you know? And to to help the child tell the story to make sure the child um, has a chance to talk about what they heard. And it's often gonna be much more about the other kids, about thoughts and feelings, how angry the adults were. Um, And then to actually uh, be able to say, well, I wanna make sure you understand with the younger, the nice thing with younger kids is that your job is to try to get the facts out there. Um, And to be able to say, well, here's the thing, There are, um, uh, there are drugs that um, a lot of people will use because they like the way it makes them feel. And sometimes kids will try them because they're curious, but here's the story. They can be really dangerous. Um, And think about, let's think about medicine from the medicine cabinet, what we say about that. Let's think about um, uh, what we say when there's uh, a fire that we're building out back um, and uh, what you have to do to take care of yourself whenever you're near something that's dangerous. So parents have this opportunity to use the same language kids might hear at school and talk about what's dangerous about drugs or alcohol. The other, If kids aren't bringing it up, um, I would say that right around fourth or fifth grade and parents are the experts on their kids. There are some very mature fourth graders, and there are some very immature fifth graders. But I would say before middle school um, is a wonderful time to to introduce the topic, and to talk to say and to often start with questions. Have you heard anything at school, maybe in health class or in an assembly or from other kids about drugs and alcohol? And most kids will be like, "No, I don't know what you're talking about," and for parents to say, "Well, okay, here's why. Here's why we're going to talk about it," and um, and to introduce that um, alcohol is, you know, something that is legal for people uh, to use starting when they're 21, and that cannabis is legal in many states um, for people to use starting at 21. Depending on, the, I don't think there's any states where it's legal at 18. Um, but and then to talk about the idea, say that there's a lot of drugs, though, that um, kids are curious about. Um, and it turns out that they're, they can be very, very dangerous, um, particularly for developing brains. And your brain is about to begin a super rapid remodeling process um, and using uh, uh, alcohol, cannabis, um, or um, any of these other drugs, and I keep mentioning cannabis because um, we do know that cannabis, which is currently thought of as being potentially safer than alcohol in adults, um, is a particular risk factor for um, 12 to 24 year olds. Um, those who are vulnerable to uh, uh, developing a thought disorder, if they become moderate to heavy users of cannabis during that developmental window, it's a pretty big window, um, their risk of developing schizophrenia can increase as much as sevenfold. Um, If they became moderate to heavy users of cannabis in their late 20s, their risk of developing schizophrenia is the same as their peer group. Um, So it's really only in that developmental window. And for parents to begin talking to their kids about how their machine is about to change um, and we have to do some special things to take care of it um, so that they uh, become the healthiest adults they can be. Um, But they want to talk about what they know about um, drugs and alcohol being dangerous for their developing brains, maybe about drugs and alcohol potentially being dangerous, even with only one use. So if you try a pill at a party, you don't know what's in that pill. And introducing the idea that there are are possibilities for really dangerous drugs to find their ways um, into the hands of other kids. Um, And so what could they say if they ever get offered um, a vape pen or a pill? Um, And then to be clear about what are the rules, what are their expectations at home about drug and alcohol use and um, also, what are the rules? The essentially the get out of jail free card, so that even if that child was ever in a situation where they had violated the rules, um, but they really they they didn't feel safe or they knew they needed to call their mom and dad, that that line is always open. That's a lot in a conversation, so these should be regular conversations, and they should start around fourth or fifth grade. Um, and also often it's easier to talk, we, you know, in psychiatry, we talk about displacement, um, but it can be for kids that are really anxious or shy or like, I don't want to talk about that. It can be easier to talk in displacement. So potentially talking about um, uh, if there is a beloved athlete um, or a movie star or a television star um, or, or performer or singer. I mean, there's no shortage of these of celebrities that have struggled publicly with drugs or alcohol. Um, find one that your child is sort of interested in, and that becomes the launch pad for a conversation. Um, and talk about it with, you know, centered on that person. I'm not, I'm not able to come up with anyone of this generation. Like I'm like, I'm thinking about Sean Cassidy, because I am that old, but <laughs> or Andy Gibb. Like it's I am that old. Um, but to be able to have a conversation about someone that they love or admire, or at least they know about and talk about like what was difficult about drugs and alcohol, how it may have um, created trouble for them and now what they're doing and use that as the sort of um, the holder of the story and then to be able to say, but he, and here's our rules in this house and also why it's so important that you know that you could always talk to us. Um, so have those conversations really regularly. It'll make it so much easier when you then want to check in as your child's in middle school to be like, what's going on? Have you like, I heard there was so much beeping in the bathroom and it's going to be so much easier for the child to talk to to that, those parents um, when there's some groundwork. It doesn't feel like it's uh, the very first conversation about drugs and alcohol.
0: Same as they would talk
1: about sex. Not easy, but it's good to get it out there.
0: Well, I have to say this has been absolutely fantastic. I'm sure we could talk for another hour and yet you and I both have <laughs> meetings to go to. So mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you. I think this is going to be great uh, information for parents, for clinicians, for our community. So I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thanks for doing this, Casey. I love any, any public conversation about this, what makes it less likely to be a problem for a family or to get, get on it earlier makes a big difference in the lives of our, of our young people. So
0: thanks for doing it. Of course. And that is the end of the interview and of this episode. Thank you so much to Dr. Swick for joining me and giving us all this great information on this topic. Now, if you find this podcast helpful, please share it with a colleague. And if you've got a few spare moments, please give this podcast a review on whatever podcast app you are using. If you'd like to reach me, I am on Twitter with the handle at AddictionEMAC, or you can reach me via email at AddictionEMAC at FastMail.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.